welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. After two years of trying to keep hope alive through this podcast, hope we've got. We have a president-elect and a new thoughtful leadership coming to this country. Today, I talk with a leader who will be working in Congress and closely with the administration on how to address COVID and repair our health system and our civic life. Congressman Ami Barra has represented the Sacramento area since 2013 when he left practicing medicine to run for office. Representative Barra is a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and chairman of the Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, and Nonproliferation. He's also vice chair of the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Finally, Congressman Bear is a leader of the New Democratic Coalition, an important partner to New Deal. Congressman Barra, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to talk to you. Ryan, thanks for having me on. First, I want to congratulate you on your reelection. Your district was uh, one of the tough-fought districts many years ago, but uh, your work and reputation has allowed you to, uh, to cruise to a reelection, and we appreciate uh, having you as a leader here in California. Yeah, thank you. And, and considering some of the nail-biting elections that I've had in years past, it was uh, felt good to be called on election night. That is, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we were happy to see it. First, I want to start with uh, your experience as a doctor. Our state is moving towards a lockdown uh, in a matter of hours. We're seeing COVID cases spike across the country. What do you see that we can do from a policymaking perspective and a public health perspective to get this virus under control? You know, I think a, a, a couple things. And, you know, it's unfortunate that we find ourselves where we are today, where you really have widespread virus across this country in literally every state, and you're seeing those case rates go up. Um, we're so in the Midwest and in, in the North, but certainly we're seeing case numbers climb here in California and certainly my home county of Sacramento. Um, and at this juncture, it's really hard to um, identify cases and do the contact tracing because you just really have viral spread um, out there. And, you know, the things that we could do right now really are wearing the face coverings, really minimizing the time that, that you're out um, and li- limiting it to essential activities. In addition, um, you know, obviously, as we go into December and, and the like, really um, trying not to, you know, we all miss Thanksgiving, we all miss Christmas and family gatherings, but this year, it's not a, a great time to do that. As we try to move into January and hopefully have a more responsible and sane approach to this virus out of the federal government, what are you looking for from our health system to respond to the virus and then to hopefully start getting these promising vaccines out to the, to the population? Yeah, so a few things. And the reason why we are going back into a lockdown scenario, much as we were in the springtime and in California in July and August, is we don't want to overwhelm our hospitals. And we're starting to see 
hospital beds fill up, ICU beds fill up, and you know, we really have to keep that capacity because we do think you know cases will peak around Christmas. Um, from the federal government, you know, and I'm not one who you know, compliments the Trump administration a lot, but you know, Operation Warp Speed. Um, working with several different vaccine manufacturers does seem to be paying results. Um, you know, the, today the Moderna vaccine came out with really positive efficacy rates, of, you know, close to 95%. That is much higher than any of us thought. Pfizer, you know, recent weeks also released their data. So if we can, you know, get through the next um, month or two and get into to January, you know, it is quite conceivable that we will start vaccinating individuals because, you know, the contracts with the federal government from both these companies as well as others was that they were going to um, take a gamble and start producing and manufacturing that vaccine. So I expect both Moderna and Pfizer to go to the FDA and ask for emergency authorization. You know, I suspect they will get that granted if the data looks okay. The safety, um, trials for two months will be ending in January. And I suspect um, you could see people getting vaccinated in January. We are having local conversations, but also at the federal level on what groups of individuals do you vaccinate first. And, you know, obviously we're going to prioritize frontline healthcare workers, first responders, nursing home staff, et cetera. And then we're going to go into vulnerable populations, and particularly um, the most vulnerable population we've seen in this pandemic is folks that live in congregate settings like nursing homes. Um, we should vaccinate those individuals, then others with pre-existing conditions, um, and then we should go into neighborhoods that really have been hurt disproportionately, like communities of color, et cetera. Um, the hope is, you know, you can get enough people vaccinated by you know, maybe the summer of 2021 or a little bit beyond it. And that is how you get to herd immunity and really knock the, the, the virus rates down. This virus has exposed uh, a lot of inequities in our society. Um, it's also shown big gaps in our healthcare systems. You've, you've run healthcare systems working in Congress and with this new administration. Uh, what are you hoping to see to improve the delivery of healthcare in this country? You know, so we've always known that there are real healthcare disparities in America, that communities of color and less resource communities had less access to healthcare. They had fewer doctors and nurses, clinics, um, but they also had harder access to, to that care. And that really has come to the forefront. In addition, we've always known communities of color, the African-American community, had higher rates of diabetes and other chronic illnesses. And we know those put people at particular risk for COVID-19. That also has come to the forefront. Um, and lastly, you know, while not a pure healthcare indicator, it really does tie into healthcare, are the economic um, inequities that occur in some these communities of color and um, less advantaged communities. And that also has been exposed. Um, so, you know, as we battle and defeat this virus, let's also address those healthcare inequities and public health inequities, particularly in, in these um, communities. And I would hope that we both at the federal, state, and local level rise to the occasion and find the courage to have these open conversations about it and then throw in, you know, what we saw with the murder of George Floyd and, you know, the, the um, 
law reform issues, police reform issues, social justice issues of this past summer. And again, I hope we as a nation and certainly as a, a state in California rise to have honest conversations as we start to, to rebuild an economy, rebuild a healthcare um, system that can address these inequities. Are there a couple initiatives that you're looking forward to taking, hopefully, you know, within within the first months of the Biden administration? Very much so. I, I actually wish we could do it in the lame duck session of Congress. We passed the HEROES Act back in May, and we knew the Senate Republicans weren't going to take up our bill, but we were hopeful that they would present a counter offer. They didn't. Um, and then when they did finally present something in September, um, three to four months later, it was woefully inadequate. I, I'm hopeful as you know, now that the election is in the rearview mirror, you know there's a new administration com- coming in, that in the next four to six weeks um, in the lame duck, we could get a COVID-19 relief package. Let's find a middle ground here because we know we need that public health workforce, even though we're probably beyond doing contact tracing the way we would have done it in May. We still need to hire up tens of thousands of individuals, not just to help us get through um, you know, the, the next two months, but also as we are looking at the logistics of vaccinating 300 plus million Americans, um, that's going to be a monumental task. Second, we can't wait until January 20th to start planning what vaccination looks like, what the logistics look like. If it is one of these two vaccines that show so much promise, they have to be stored at very cold temperatures. So the cold chain storage issues, all those are logistics that we're working through that you really want to work through with the the resources of the federal government and not do it outside of the federal government. Um, Because I wish it was a vaccine where you could just walk into your local drugstore and uh, get get the vaccine and it's a two dose, these, these two are two dose vaccines. So we've got to figure out the logistics of that. And we can't wait until January 20th. We've got to hit the ground running, especially if we have vaccines ready to go before the Biden administration is sworn in. I, th- I think people are, haven't appreciated how hard it's going to be to distribute uh, this vaccine and that how much, especially those of us at the local level, need federal leadership. Um, can you talk a little bit from your both your medical experience and your uh, congressional experience about how do we set up those supply chains in order to to get this vaccine out to the to the American people? Yeah, so the the logistics are going to be monumental. And again, if it's the, the two vaccines that in recent weeks has shown um, promising results, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, those are vaccines that have to be stored at extremely cold um, temperatures. Now, university hospitals and and you know, um, tertiary care hospitals probably have the ability to, to do that. But that makes it that much difficult. Does everyone kind of cycle through the hospitals or can we come up with the technology to take um, the cold storage into communities? And you know, I can think about how I got vaccines when I was a, a kid. Often we got them in, in schools where you had um, school nurses administering the, the vaccine. You had a captive audience. The kids were there. So that that would be helpful. We also have to put the data systems together. So we, you know, everyone we're giving a vaccine to, we're monitoring. Um, and then we've got to have the interoperable medical records. So if I'm going to, let's say, a Kaiser facility and getting that vaccine, 
Um, and then, you know, maybe I go to the Sutter facility to get my second vaccine that we're tracking all that data. Again, none of these are easy things to do. They're not, um, they take time to set up. They're not technically difficult. We have folks that know how to manage a lot of these logistics, but without the federal leadership and, you know, that's where, you know, it looks like President Trump is just going to wash his hands of COVID and just let things run. I am glad that the, one of the first tasks that um, President Biden did was put together his COVID-19 task force. And when I look at the, the doctors and scientists that are on that task force, you've got a wealth of expertise and yeah, I'm confident that they're working through these issues. I know many of the folks on that task force. So I, I think they'll hit the ground running, but you'd love to then be able to talk to your county public health officers, your um, state public health directors and, and manage those logistics. So you're starting to identify the populations that you're prioritizing for a second and third. So as soon as you've got those vaccine supplies, you're ready to go. I do know those conversations are, are taking place at the state and, and county level. And I think that's where the Biden administration is proactively um, you know, reaching out and talking to folks that, you know, it looks like President Trump has prevented his um, coronavirus task force folks from working with the Biden administration. So let's not waste time. Let's work directly with the governors and the, the county supervisors and others. It's terrifying that it's it's being delayed, but I'm I'm hopeful that the new administration will be able to to tackle this complex task. You've hinted and shown the challenges we're having uh, with bipartisan approaches to problem solving with the HEROES Act and now vaccine distribution. This election was not as uh, a clear mandate for the Democrats to be able to move uh, their agenda through the through the legislative process and to the executive branch. What are your takeaways from this election, and how do we how do we get to a place where we have effective policymaking? I think a lot of folks were surprised by not the the number of votes that Vice President Biden got, but the number of folks that came out for President Trump. And, you know, some of those, those outcomes, and I'll use my own election as an example. Yes, I won on election night, but when I'm looking at my Republican opponent who really um, didn't run much of a, a campaign, he's actually going to have the highest vote total of any Republican opponent that, that I've ever had. Um, and that includes some of the most costly elections, um, you know, in congressional history. Fortunately, I also grew my vote total by 50 or 60,000 and will win pretty comfortably. But I think you saw that play out in um, many parts of this country, but there were folks that were motivated and came out um, you know, for, for President Trump and then appear to have voted down ballot Republican um, consistently. And I think we have to understand that and you know, how to speak and engage the, the Trump voter, how to understand and not dismiss the Trump voters. Certainly there are some portions of the, those folks where you're seeing um, white supremacy and, and, and extreme nationalism that, you know, are there for the Trump. But I think there are other populations you know, in the Latinx community, in, you know, African-American male that um, voted for Trump. And I think we've got to figure out what is the, the message that um, the Trump campaign was sharing that motivated them to come out and, and cast ballots for him. I think when I look at the election results, um, you know, with a slimmer um, majority on the House side, 
um, with an incoming Democratic administration and, and uh, President-elect Joe Biden, who has a natural history as a dealmaker, um, both as a senator, but then also when he was vice president, he was the one that President Obama would send to the Hill to get people to yes. I actually think it allows him to um, work with a center-left agenda that probably is in alignment with, while there are not many moderate Republicans left, with those few that are. And look, I don't know what um, Mitch McConnell will do if he retains the, the leadership um, in the Senate, but I would hope that they have a old enough and deep enough relationship between President Biden, uh, President-elect Biden and, and a potential leader, McConnell, that they can say, let's just get that done. And may not be the, the big um, things, but it might be the incremental stuff that starts to heal this nation, starts to heal our economy and starts to get people back to work. So you've represented what was a, uh, a very contentious swing district. As you said, now you've moved comfortably into winning. What is your message for the National Democratic Party about how we win more of these swing districts and how do we build a, a working majority going forward? You know, I, th- I think it's consistent with what I said when I answered the previous question is I, I don't dismiss any of um, my constituents. I may disagree with some of their perspectives, but I'll respect that that's their perspective. Um, and part of it is being willing to show up early in my career when you really did have a Tea Party dominant um, Republican Party. Um, and, you know, Tea Party Express was founded in my district and I would still do town halls and they would show up and or they would invite me to things and I would show up and again, I'd make my case and half this job really is showing up. And like, I don't want us to dismiss the, the Trump voter or folks that have voted for Trump. Um, I think we've got to try to understand them. I think there are things that um, could find common ground. I think the, the economic inequities that you might see in um, Appalachia are similar to the economic inequities that you might see in um, inner city Los Angeles. And, you know, are there policies that we can put together to bridge both that are good for folks in West Virginia, but also good for folks in in middle or in uh, inner city America? I also think, you know, we've all talked about wanting to do infrastructure. Let's get it done. All of us, Democrat or Republican, we've got roads, bridges, highways that are in need of, of rebuilding. And let's do it in a smart way that helps put people to work, gives them a paycheck. Um, and builds the, the economic um, engine that we need to have a, a prosperous 21st century. So that would include rural broadband. That would include um, you know, trying to modernize and bring so many of the public schools into the 21st century so they're modern learning environments. It's also, you know, we ought to have 21st century transportation systems looking at what public transportation looks like you know, addressing issues of um, housing affordability and you know, how you pair that with, with transportation systems and public transportation, but not building what we have in the 20, 20th century, but really thinking about you know, those millennials and that next generation, how they want to live, how they want to work, how they want to move around. And again, I would hope those are things that we could all agree on as, as, as Americans, not as one party or the other party. And I think you've, you've been a leader in pushing those sorts of initiatives through the New Democrat Coalition, which has worked with New Deal and a lot of other organizations. 
Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that coalition and what you're going to be prioritizing? Uh, as you mentioned, I assume it'll be infrastructure as well as economic justice and opportunity. But tell us about that work and, and how you think that might shape both the future of policy, but also politics in America. Yeah, no, and it, the, the partnership that the New Democrat Coalition has had at the congressional level with the New Deal um, leadership um, at the state and local level has, has been great. And, you know, we're thrilled that, you know, we're getting a New Deal leader in the former um, Tacoma mayor, Marilyn Strickland, who just got elected to Congress. She's going to be a great new member of Congress. And, you know, others that, you know, we're holding out hope that Ben McAdams um, pulls through on his race. Um, and then we watched another New Deal leader, um, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, just, you know, captivate folks with his presidential run. Um, and I think Pete's got, um, you know, Mayor Pete's got a great future ahead of us. I actually think, you know, when we think about some of these policies, we almost have to think about them as mayors or county supervisors, um, because mayors and county supervisors have to get things done. They don't have the luxury of not implementing um, policies and balancing budgets and figuring out how to pay for it. Um, we as the, the New Democrat Coalition are a, a group of right now 104 pragmatic, um, economic, um, and innovative-minded leaders in Congress. We're the largest ideologic caucus in um, Congress. You know, we may not have the, the highest Twitter following because we actually like to sit down and um, work through the policy and get to yes. Um, we, I, I believe we will stay the largest caucus. And in fact, you know, the only seats that um, we flipped from Republican to Democrat um, in 2018 and in this cycle were new them endorsed candidates. And we will um, have flipped a couple seats and there's still a few races left to be called. Um, I think, you know, we will hit the ground running. Obviously, yeah, now that President-elect Biden is going to be President Biden, he will set some of that agenda. But, you know, being close to the, the, the Biden team, yeah, I know the, the first, second, and third focus is going to be um, defeating the virus and then rebuilding the economy. And, you know, from their perspective, and I would agree with that, um, those are um, essentially the same thing. You can't have an economic rebound without having defeated the virus. and. Um, so I think we'll work very closely with him, hopefully prior to his coming um, into office, but certainly hitting the ground running on January 20th. Um, I also think you know, there will be a few things that the Trump administration did um, through executive action that Vice President Biden you know, will undo fairly quickly. Um, but then I think we get down to the, 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 the hard um, challenges of rebuilding um, a, the number of jobs that were lost and really starting to give people a paycheck and not an unemployment check. And in some ways, this is going to be harder than it was a decade ago with the Great Recession um, because now we're going to have to build new industries. And that would start with infrastructure, but it also starts with addressing healthcare inequities and, and the cost of healthcare and seeing if you can't get to universal coverage. Um, particularly, again, in the pandemic, it might create some opportunities for us to rethink what 21st century healthcare delivery looks like. Um, after that, we know a lot of our kids um, have faced challenges with school shutdowns, et cetera. 
can we reinvigorate and bring um, public education K through 12 into the 21st century? Can we address the, the cost of higher education and really think of this as a, an investment that we're making in the future of the country, much as it was when, when I was going to, to college and, and medical school? Um, and knowing that those investments pay a return on investment by, you know, I was able to become a doctor and congressman and you know, not have a mountain of debt. So um, there's plenty of us, to, plenty of things to work on. Um, I think we have a president and vice president that are coming in who, it's not his motto, but it's kind of my motto for President Biden, which is get stuff done. Um, and I think that's what the New Dem Coalition wants to do is get stuff done and do it in a bipartisan way. And I think you mentioned this, but I'd be interested in your take that, you know, what you're outlining, I think, would bring not only a majority of Democrats, but a majority of Americans uh, together and really make them feel good about the approach the government's taking. But it's not likely uh, to go viral on Twitter or other places. How do you deal with the fact that the social media algorithms don't seem to sort of reward the sit down at the table and work through the details and solve problems versus creating controversy and and how do you get your message out to people in this you know loud and crowded environment you know it, it is it, that if you have to answer that question um certainly share it with me it, it's not easy and it's where i think each of us then have to go back to our districts and you know, let them know and make sure our constituents know how hard we're working on their behalf. And obviously that's doing constituent services work, but it's also, if we actually are building um, those bridges or overpasses or filling the potholes, when we go up to those ribbon cuttings, people will notice and people will start to think, hey, things are getting done. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, yes, some folks are going to have really big Twitter followings and so forth. But I think the vast majority of folks are just saying, you know what, how can I pay my rent this month? How can I um, put food on the table? How can I get my kids to soccer practice? Their mom and dad are retired and they're getting older and their health care costs. Um, and we just have to be able to tell folks that we hear them and we're, we're working on it. But we've also got to show progress by passing legislation and in divided government it's not good enough for us to just pass things out of the House of Representatives that go nowhere in the Senate. We ought to pass things that you can get enough votes in the Senate that would go to the desk of, of President Biden and he's willing to sign. And you know, I think that's where President Biden really is going to shine. I don't think he will hesitate to pick up the phone and um, you know, talk to the Republicans in the Senate and then work with our leadership. He is now the leader of our party. So he will be driving the agenda and we'll be, yeah, I'm excited to, to work with President Biden or, and Vice President Harris. And speaking of Vice President Harris, this is a major moment for Indian Americans uh, in our national history. Can you just talk a little bit about what you see in this moment for Indian Americans and what you think the future holds? I, you know, I think this is a, a massive moment, not just for Indian Americans or Asian Americans or African Americans. But, or, or women, I think, um, you know, Senator Harris, soon to be Vice President Harris, um, you know, breaks and shatters a lot of glass ceilings here. 
Um, when I think about my daughter, who's Indian American and my wife's African American, so she is, really is the epitome of Kamala Harris. She can see herself in, in Vice President-elect Harris. Can many um, African American young girls, as well as um, South Asian and Asian American young girls, and that's the beauty of America. That you know, one generation, her mom and dad can immigrate here as a daughter of immigrants. You know, she can climb to the highest runs of, of our federal government. And we ought to be proud about that. And, you know, that is epitomizes what is the best in America. I can also add, just as I look back at this election, and it was a hard-fought, contentious election, and we had some wins, we had some losses. But what I am so proud about as an American is the record number of people who showed up to to cast their ballot and express their voice through their vote. Um, that was phenomenal. And the number of young people that organized, showed up, did what they could in the middle of the pandemic, we ought to be proud about that as Americans. And, you know, the world was watching and our democracy was working. And we all had a lot of fears that, you know, there might be violence pre or post election. And certainly there's been some confrontations, but nothing compared to, to what our worst fears were. And I truly believe January 20th, we will see a smooth transition of power. I would hope that would start now with giving the Biden administration access to everything. But, you know, this is an unconventional president and Trump. Um, but the machinery of our democracy is working, and we ought to be proud of that. Couldn't agree more, both on the, the state of... Uh... Uh, and the turnout by our voters and also by this historic event and what it means to people, uh, especially young women like your daughter, for for their possibilities in the future. Uh, Congressman Barra, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your leadership in Congress and in the state of California. We're lucky to have you as a partner uh, with New Deal. Well, Ryan, thank you. And thank you for everything that the New Deal does in terms of you know, um, creating the leadership opportunities for the next generation of, of members of Congress and future presidents. Hey, thank you. Have a great day. Okay, be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.